It's the 6th of July, 2016. I'm Simon Copland. I'm Benjamin Riley. Welcome to Queers. Uh, each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme. And today is a little special for two reasons. First of all, as you will have just heard, we have our very own brand new theme music. Uh, Ben's brother, Nathaniel, composed that for us. Uh, so thank you very much, Nathaniel. It's great. The second thing that's a bit special is that Simon and I are in the same city for once, so for the first time ever we're recording the podcast in the same place, and it happens to be my lounge room. Benjamin here. I'm editing the podcast and just wanted to jump in. Uh, Simon and I, as we said, were recording this in the same room, which we had never done before, uh, so the audio quality on this episode is not great, so sorry about that. Um, We will be back to normal, hopefully, with the next episodes. Okay, thanks. Back to it. So for today's topic, we're going to be talking about how to deal with quote-unquote bigots. So first off, we wanted to say that before we even started recording the podcast, Simon and I both expressed how much we hate the word bigots, uh, but that's the word people use most often, so I guess that's just what we're going to use to, to keep this off. But we are going to be probably deconstructing the ideas around that quite a bit. Uh, The impetus for this episode comes from the Australian federal election, uh, which happened over the weekend, just gone. Uh, Probably one of the most notable results, um, apart from the complete uncertainty of the election, uh, was the election of One Nation Senator Pauline Hanson. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Hanson shot to fame in the 1990s after she was elected to the House of Representatives in Australia uh, and in her first speech warned that Australia was facing a flood of Asians approaching our shores. Uh, Hanson continued this sort of language in her election bid this year, this time targeting her ire at Australia's Muslim population. Obviously, Hanson's election has created a stir in Australia with her often being referred to as, uh, referred to as Australia's Donald Trump or Nigel Farage. Many have been quick to blame, quote-unquote, ignorant voters for her rise and demand that we automatically shun her as an intolerable bigot, again in quotes, who has no authority in a democratic society, Again, this is similar sort of language we see targeted at people like Trump in the US and Farage in the UK. This got Ben and I thinking about how do we deal with quote-unquote bigots? Uh, And importantly, how do we work with people who elect bigots into our highest offices? Uh, What can we do about the uh, the apparent resurgence of this sort of hateful politics and speech in our democratic societies? So while the Hanson example is is kind of about racism more than being specifically related to queer communities, we think this is really important for queers as well, particularly in the Australian context where we are facing the prospect of a national vote on marriage equality sometime soon. Many fear that such a vote will unleash a barrage of hatred from bigots towards the queer community. Awesome. So, Ben, let's get started. Um, How do we work with someone like Pauline Hanson, who's just been elected to our parliament? Uh, uh, Should we engage with her or just reject her outright? Well, I think we, I mean, we have to engage with her uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, I think when we see a result like this from the election, as we have seen, and it's kind of, I think, comparable to, as you said, um, things that have happened in the US and the UK recently, you kind of have to ask the question, why was she elected? Who is voting for her? And clearly it indicates some sentiment uh, in the Australian in Australian communities that we have to take seriously. Whether or not we take Pauline Hanson herself seriously, um, we have to take her seriously as someone who is representing real people and real people with, with deeply held views. I think where it gets tricky and this 
argument has been made quite a bit, uh, again, around the situations in the US and the UK, is being able to say whether, I guess, what people are saying or what their elected representatives are saying are really the reasons for why people are voting for them. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's where it's worth um, sort of touching on this issue um, quite a lot. And I, and I think it's first first of all worth acknowledging the amount of pain that the language someone like Hanson uses can cause to to uh, to to people. Uh, and and we'll go into this I think around the publicite as well around the sort of pain people are feeling around a lot of the language that's being used, um, but. I think that's important to see. I think that there's almost a distinction between how people like us may see someone like Pauline Hanson compared to the people who vote for her may see her. And people aren't necessarily just voting for her because of her comments on on race issues. She actually has a whole lot of stuff around economic policies in particular that connect to a lot of people. And, and that goes to why some of this uh, language works so well um, and what are the causes behind some of this racism or homophobia that we may be seeing in our society. Um, I think it's important to understand that there are causes to these things. Totally. It doesn't, you know, uh, you hear a lot about like racism or homophobia or sexism as sort of being almost inherent that people are just, you know. Or like, or like a kind of a choice by stupid people. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. They just It's just hatred or whatever that is without, you know, because they're ignorant, ignorant hatred or something like that. But there's actual genuine reasons for it, and that doesn't, that's not an excuse for having, you know, being... So, <laughs> you know. We should really just possibly keep reiterating that we're not fans of Pauline Hatton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is not a defence of, of Pauline Hatton and uh, certainly not a defence of her uh, racism. And I, I think there, you know, she is something to spout a lot of racism. Oh, yeah, she um, absolutely does so. a lot of racism. And I'm not, I'm not, not justifying that. Uh, but a lot of that uh, a racism, I think, is embedded in a whole range of economic uncertainties that are occurring uh, in our society and that are being felt by particular populations in particular ways. And this, the racism becomes a scapegoat for those issues in many ways. And I think you can see a lot of the similar stuff with um, sexism and homophobia as well, is that, that, that the, the hatred exp ex expressed to particular groups of people is an expression of something else that is going on in our society. Mm. Um, and potentially in, in, in times of quite a lot of economic uncertainty, that might be why we're seeing a bit of an explosion of these sorts or res resurgence of people like Hanson or Trump in the US or Farage in the UK. Uh, there's, yeah. enough, there's enough of it going on that it's hard to argue that it's not a trend. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's probably worth, uh, before we move on too far from Pauline Hansen, just talking in a bit more specific detail about the kinds of, um, you know, when you talk about economic uncertainty and perhaps why people are voting for someone like Pauline Hansen, what exactly we're talking about here. I mean, you shared uh, an article on Facebook, I can't remember the the journalist's name. Margot Kingston. Margot Kingston, that's right, um, who talked about being on the campaign trail with Pauline Hanson when she first ran back in 1998. Um, and it, she, she talks a lot about um, actually talking to people voting for Pauline Hanson and, and kind of why they were doing so. Um, did you want to talk a bit more about that? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, what, what, I guess what she found, you know, in what she, what she related in this article was a feeling of... Um, 
sort of almost surprise at the 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 why, the reasons people were voting for Boyan Hansen, um, and a real disconnect between herself, you know, and she 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 outlines the article saying Pauline Hansen came last on my ballot in this election, you know, that she's not a fan of Pauline Hansen, um, and feeling a real disconnect with a lot of the voters who just couldn't, you know, who just saw things from a very different perspective. And when she brought up questions, for example, on, in, in her discussion, when she brought up questions about whether Pauline Hansen was a racist, people didn't even comprehend that or saw it, saw it in a very different light um, from that. Uh, but then also spoke, I guess, about the the real, you know, you know, and, and we we can talk about this because this is sort of different to our what, our, what we talk normally talk about our podcast. But you know, real wage stagnation that is occurring in communities, the loss of industries that are occurring in communities, the uh, feeling of increasing pressure on prices, and the increasing instability. I guess that people don't feel that they are have that their future is stable. Uh, and this getting expressed into in particular ways. Mm. Um, and Pauline Hansen is very, very good. And I think that what she's, she's very good at speaking to people who are feeling those pressures um, totally. very, very well. I think there's a tendency sometimes on the left for people, even or commentators, I guess, people like us, yeah, um, yeah. who even if we do try to have some empathy for people who are voting for people like Pauline Hansen or Donald Trump, to assign a kind of false consciousness to them to say that, the racism that people like us might see as the dominant feature of those campaigns is in fact, um, you know, just a kind of code for something else. Mm. Whereas what, what I found really interesting about reading uh, this Margaret Kingston article is that it's not, it's not like these people, oh God, I'm trying really hard to avoid like, <laughs> these, these people. people yeah. um, it's not like people who are voting for Pauline Hansen are not talking about these economic issues. And so I think that there's a problem of um, perception here, you know, mm-hmm. that, that people on the left maybe just zero in on racism as the kind of, as the only thing that these campaigns are about. Uh, and even if they do have empathy, yeah, as I said, assign a kind of false consciousness, whereas in fact they're, they're actually about a lot more than that and, and yeah. we maybe just don't see it. Yeah, yeah. People like us or people, you know, people like Margot, and I think she identified this in her article, come in with the with almost the expectation that it's all about race, that it's all about those particular issues. And, and we could probably say the same for a lot of anti-queer stuff as well, that we assume that this is, you know, and, and for some people it definitely is, you know, if you're talking about your ACLs of the world in Australian Christian lobby, I think there is a lot of obsession on sexuality uh, for some strange reason. But, you know, when we're talking about people like, you know, people who are voting for someone like Pauline Hanson, I think that we assume it's all just because they're racists, but actually there are a whole range of other reasons to vote for someone like her. Mm. Uh, and, and, and not just kind of like in, not just kind of sitting underneath, but like explicitly in the discourse of, absolutely. of these groups. Absolutely. And explicitly in her, in her discourse, mm. you know, and, in, in her discourse about a whole range of stuff uh, that um, deals with these sort of economic uncertainties in particular and deal with these these economic issues that people are facing. Um, and I think we have to... That is something that the left is not talking about very much. Uh, it, or when it does talk about economic uncertainties, it talks about it in, we talk about it in a very strange, sort of disconnected kind of ways from, from real people's lives. Uh, and when you when you watch her speak... To people, and when, when you watch the, even someone like Donald Trump or Nigel Farage speak 
to people about these sorts of issues, you can see why that why it's appealing, mm-hmm. um, and why and how it connects to people because it does. She does. She. I think Margot Kingston talks about how she does a very good job of connecting with people and engaging with people and talking like a real person rather than talking like a politician. That appeals to me. Like she doesn't, Pauline Hanson doesn't appeal to me, but politicians who can talk to you like a real person, that appeals to me, appeals to me a lot. Mm, um, yeah. Very different. And it's one of the reasons why I think so people are disconnected, you know, why she's so popular is because people are disconnected from politicians who act like politicians all the time. Mm. Um, I mean, it's, it's tricky to, I mean, I'm jumping uh, maybe skipping forward a bit, but yeah. if I, if I think about uh, anti queer rhetoric and and try to compare it to what we're talking about re racism, it's uh, it just is complicated in a lot of ways because it, it's difficult to see you know something I guess have a, have a particular kind of interest in economic inequalities and and material inequalities, but it's I mean, I would at least find it difficult to make the same connections between mm. a group like the Australian Christian Lobby, who are, um, if people are not aware, the kind of main agitators against, I mean, <laughs> not just uh, something like marriage equality, but really um, anything, yeah, pretty, pretty <laughs> anything. much any sort of socially progressive um, legislation in Australia. Uh, and I think it's it's tricky for, yeah, I mean, I suppose it, it's hard to to see that they are it's hard to see what they're tapping into in the same way I yeah guess. i guess i guess there's a different sort of and, and i'm thinking at the top of my head here but it's almost a different sort of uncertainty in that sort of world and that you know the a lot of racism and i think particularly a lot of anti-refugee uh rhetoric is focused around economic uncertainty and that sort of you know people like to mock the they took our jobs thing all totally, the time. totally but if you live like, in like a really poor suburb and you're finding it really hard to get a job that pays well or get a job at all, and you see people who don't look like you everywhere, I mean, that, that connection, I can imagine, would be really easy to yeah, make. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, it, uh, but I suppose I wonder what, like, what is the uncertainty? Yeah, well, I guess, I, guess I think that there's, you know, and, uh, and I don't know, you know, this probably explores, it requires more in-depth um, exploration, but I think if you look at some of the really recent anti-queer attacks, um, both safe schools in Australia, uh, a lot of the rhetoric around marriage equality that's happening in Australia, but that's been stuff that's been replicated in other countries around the world, and also the sort of trans um, bathroom stuff that's been occurring in the United States, a lot of that is the painting of queers as as dangerous and it's, and it's uncertainty around our society or how our society operates in a different sort of way. It's not necessarily economics, but it's about the breaking yeah, down no, of the sure. foundations. I mean, interestingly, all of the things that you just mentioned, I mean, safe, safe schools is an obvious one because it's about schools, but all of the things you've just mentioned, the kind of um, uh, arguments against them have always come back to kids. Mm-hmm. Um, the trans bathroom stuff, the, the kind of lines are always, you know, you, you'll be able to have, like, men going into women's bathrooms and, like, yeah, grabbing yeah. little girls, girls or whatever. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and with marriage equality as well, it's always, you know, the whole... Um, the, even the stuff that we saw during the Australian election campaign, the flyering from uh, the Australian Christian lobby, was all, like, kids deserve to have a mum and a dad. Yep, yep. And it's... I mean, that... I mean, I think the... Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's funny, like, how disconnected what they see as the main issue is. It's not that 
queens don't think kids are relevant to the marriage equality debate because I feel like even the kind of lobbyists do. But um, yeah, it is really yeah, just and that, and that and sort of it's it's almost about the breakdown of the family structure as as totally, taps totally. into that taps into well, it's, it's not almost about it. It's, it is about it, uh, and it's tapping into, I guess, uncertainty about people's personal lives. Is the is the way it the way it works? I think, uh, and it's that is the experience of homophobia that I can see quite a lot. And I think you know, talking about the kids stuff, I remember seeing this um, this cartoon that you know, this right wing cartoon that flows around about. Um, uh, the trans bar- the the bathroom legislation re- regarding trans people in the United States, and it's a picture of this sort of, I guess, guy. I don't know, how, was it, you know, person who is with long hair, but you know, muscly with hair, you know, with you know, that sort of, you know, the sort of awful picture of someone who is a very, a very masculine presenting person in women's clothes. Yeah, very masculine presenting. Perfect. That's the best way. And then, you know, uh, standing at a urinal peeing and then this child running away, really scared of this person. And then, you know, the, the person says, oh, you fucking bigot or something like that. You know, and it's like that sort of that representation of people as, you know, terrifying children in bathrooms and destroying children's lives in, in you know, because they're, you know, two dads and two mums or something like that. That is the representation we're seeing. And it's about the family life and breaking down children's futures. I mean, it's so, it's so interesting because it, it, it sort of takes away the, like, I feel like the way we were talking about Pauline Hanson, we were almost describing racism as the sort of middleman between, um, Mm. Like, you know, how people politically engage with economic uncertainty. But in these cases, I mean, we're, we're just literally talking about homophobia. I mean, or, or you know, transphobia or biphobia. Like, we're, we're talking about fear of, like, it, it's much more directly about the issue. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think what makes um, the hopefully, well, we may disagree on this, the, the possibly up, upcoming uh, plebiscite in Australia um, so interesting at the very least is that it's important not to compare a group like the ACL directly to Pauline Hanson because people are not voting for the ACL. Mm -hmm. We can't, I mean, when we look at kind of um, people who stir up homophobia in Australia or at least become um, kind of touchstones, social touchstones for it, they're not... uh, they're like lobby groups. Yeah, you know, they're, they're not getting of, elected to stuff. No, they're, they're working behind the scenes with often kind of conservative MPs. Um, you know, you don't see, I'm trying to think of an example, but like someone like Corbinati, who's a very uh, high profile, um, very conservative uh, Australian politician, but within one of the major parties. Yeah, and one of those ones that gets called a bigot all the time. Totally. It's, it, it's kind of hard to point to grassroots support for him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so what is fascinating about and, and very uncertain, I think, about the possibility of a plebiscite on marriage equality is I have absolutely no idea what, like, how Australia would vote. Like, I, I just don't know. Yeah. Because like, I feel like we don't... Um, people haven't really had an opportunity to vote for homophobia before in a really yeah, direct way. I, I think I'm far more confident about the potential of that vote. And I think that... And I, and I think this is an interesting distinction to draw between someone like Pauline Hanson uh, compared to to the ACL or, or something like that, and and to I guess the popular sentiment or um, 
a popular or, you know, the, the sentiment in regards to racism compared to homophobia and that you are seeing uh, an unfortunate circumstance, a really awful circumstance in which these racist sentiments are, are not just sort of there in our society as exists with homophobia, but is also increasing to the point where people who are expressing them are getting elected to extremely high offices. Uh, and that that's a very worrying trend um, and one that we need to engage with really deeply to be able to, to counteract. And it's not just, you know, we've talked about Farage and Donald Trump, but if you look at the, the rise of the far right in Europe in particular, it is very strongly based on an anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, but that, that connects strongly, I think, with the the very serious economic issues that have been occurring in Europe. We're not seeing a similar thing in regards to homophobia. The the sorts of legislation that's been passed in the United States, for example, has received significant backlash. Um, and you can see correlations. So North Carolina is one of the, um, the places where um, the anti-trans legislation was implemented. There is actually a strong correlation between the implementation of that bill and dropping in polls for people who have implemented that bill. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is something that, you know, the pollsters have observed quite strongly in the in, in places in the US. You also see the instance in Ireland, for example, which was considered a very conservative country where, where a homophobic message may actually have resonance, um, a lot more resonance than I think it would in Australia where they passed marriage equality with, you know, flying colours. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that there is a difference. There is an att- more of an attempt to, to create the queer as dangerous. Um, and I think it's a worrying trend that we, we need to be vigilant about. Um, but I don't think we're at the same level of what's happening in terms of racism and and in particular anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim sentiment at the moment where it is actually resulting in the rise of these far-right parties. Totally. And if you think about parts of the world where there are uh, sort of homophobic political movements on a much larger scale, places like, I mean, the best examples are Russia and the Middle East Mm. um, and parts of Southeast Asia as well. The uh, Oh, and parts of Africa too. Of course. Uh, Lots of places. (laughs) Uh, The... What's particularly interesting about, um, I think we've touched on this a little bit in previous podcasts, what's particularly interesting about those places is that you kind of can draw the the parallels that we can't draw here between um, the relationship between racism and economic inequality, whereas I think in those places it's often about um, disaffection with the influence of the West. Yeah. Um, You know, there, there are... You know, there's gosh, plenty of analysis out there around, like, say, Russia, for example, where homophobia in... Oh, we have talked about this, that's right. Yeah, we did when we talked about Eurovision. Yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, where um, it's it's arguable that um, the Russian government uses homophobia as a tool to kind of stir up uh, sort of anti-Western mm. nationalism, yeah. essentially. Yeah, and, and it's very similar in Africa, and, and that is um, something that has been noted by a lot of... Uh, a lot of theorists in this area that it is sort of it's almost a form of anti-colonialism uh and seeing and using using queer people as the as the i don't know what the word i'm looking for is but as the people to 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 rail against um as a way to stop sort of western imperialism coming in and changing cultures and changing economic practices maybe it's worth coming back because i think it's worth thinking about the plebiscite uh, as we uh, to, to maybe conclude this a little bit more because we had some sort of discussion before we recorded this about the idea of free speech, uh, and I was thinking about the plebiscite, you know, and there's a lot of fears um, and a lot of the anti-plebiscite discussion has been focused around the, the potential nature of the debate, and you see a lot of people posting hateful stuff from from conservatives in Australia saying, you know, I've seen this all the time now, you know, look at this hateful thing, this is what will happen under a plebiscite. 
Um, you know, this is this is going to hurt, you know, people's mental health, it's going to hurt children, it's going to make people feel very unsafe. Um, are these fears, and maybe if we take away some of the other anti-plebiscite issues, some of the other reasons people don't like a plebiscite, but are these fears legitimate enough in order to stop some such a, such a, such an idea of a vote going ahead? Uh, oh, that's the question, isn't it? See, I can't, I can't take away the other issues. Okay, that's yeah. the thing. I, like, I, I feel like there are so many, like, I don't know, to, not to kind of get too bogged down on like the legislative process in Australia, but like, this is not how we legislate in this country. It makes no sense. There's virtually no precedent for it. It's not. You know, numerous politicians have said that it's not going to mean anything. Mm-hmm. I feel like those are all very, like, those are all good enough reasons not to do it. I find it bizarre and frustrating that this hate speech angle has become not only the dominant uh, discourse of opposition to the plebiscite, but in, in a lot of ways, the only discourse of opposition mm-hmm. to it. I mean, early on, there was some kind of stuff about, like, here's how much it's going to cost and all that kind of thing. But I feel like that's largely disappeared. Like, I was I was very surprised to see um, in the week before the election, I mean, it's kind of, I feel like it's astonishing even that this ended up being the issue in the days yeah, before yeah, the election. Like, that's so crazy, like... It just is so, there are just so many more important things. It just shocks me. But we had pretty much the most prominent um, queer politician in the country, a woman named Penny Wong, uh, like spouting this exact line, like saying, you know, this will hurt my family. And to hear that even from a legislator in this country, when, as I said, there are all these other reasons that are more like, to me, reasons that go to the heart of what a democracy is to oppose this. I, I just, I'm just like, is that what we are now? Are we, is that what we are as a community now? Yeah, and I think that maybe this is where I'm getting to with some of these questions is I agree that it has become the dominant narrative around the plebiscite has been, look, you know, all this hate speech it will create, and that's really awful. Uh, and, and, and again, I want to go back to acknowledge to the, the real pain that this sort of speech causes, but it does frustrate me that that has become the the dominant narrative around it and for a couple of reasons. Firstly, you know, I think that the other arguments are stronger. Um, if, you, if you're opposed to plebiscite, and I'm not, I'm on the fence around the plebiscite, <laughs> um, but secondly, I think it's actually a really dangerous discussion to be having. Um, and... And for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I think that it it denies our ability to have debate about about these really difficult issues, and it suggests in the future, you know, whether it's a plebiscite or other things, that if there's going to be a reaction, a hard right reaction, that to to things we're demanding, that we should be cautious about talking about it because we might hurt our community. And you know, and you know, you can people, you know, and there's so many examples I've made in the past where it's like, you know, the the fight for uh, Black Lives Matters, for example, which is considered a sort of radical part of the civil rights movement in the United States at the moment, has undoubtedly caused, caused backlash. Um, and I can see sort of more conservative elements of that movement saying, look at the backlash you're causing, you have to stop what you're doing. Mm. And I find that really, really, I was really 
struggle with that. And I think that there is a there is a real potential that following this debate on the plebiscite, that that is what you'll see in Australia around queer politics in particular, that anything that is considered more radical will be told to be brought in because it will create backlash for other queer, queer members of our community. Totally. Well, I think, about, I think that's already happening. Absolutely. And I think about, you know, we this uh, opposition to the, this concern about hate speech is, is often framed around uh, groups like the ACL or, or people who are bigots. But, I mean, to be honest, my bigger concern would be, uh, you know, we can handle that. We've been handling that for a long time. Yeah, I'm not saying it won't be awful, but, you know, like we are resilient. We are resilient people, us queers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the bigger concern for me is, is I, don't, I don't want to use the term hate speech. It's so stupid. The bigger concern for me is is bigotry from. Oh God, it's so hard to talk about this topic without using stupid words. Um, uh, I'm just going to say bigotry. Bigotry from within our own community. Uh, I, I think. Um, yeah, God. I mean, I've already had discussions with people uh, who actually, you know, a really good example of this is. Um, the recent, uh, which I, you know, full disclosure, I, I was involved with at uh, my job, the recent publication of um, results from a major survey on um, gay men's uh, basically sex and relationships. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there was a huge backlash against it, which I was just appalled at that was basically framed around uh, marriage equality, bizarrely, despite the fact that I would see the things as having little to do with each other, mm. uh, with marriage equality advocates uh, from our community saying, uh, this research is bullshit, it's unscientific, blah, 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 blah. And by uh, promoting it, you are hurting the marriage equality yeah. campaign. And for, for the context, that was research that said that a lot of gay men have multiple partners. Totally, totally. The open relationships are really common. Yeah. Um, yeah, basically yeah. that gay men are often, like, promiscuous yeah. and, you know, I just... I, yeah, and, I, and, I, and that's something that I've experienced as well, and I've spoken about this before, as someone who is open about being in a polyamorous relationship, it is, whenever I talk about that publicly, that is the first argument that comes back at me. It's not my so-called, you know, supposedly conservative straight friends who are going to be the ones who are the ones that have a go. They're all very supportive. It is often gay men in particular who tell me, shut up. You're, uh, you're hurting our campaign for marriage equality. Oh, and, and, that, and that's really awful. And I can see a lot of this discussion about hate speech uh, in, this, in the way it's happening will, will increase that to a lot of... Uh, will increase the instances of that. And I can see that already. And I think the other thing that really worries me, though, is also that in the focus on hate speech, it really... And and, I, and even like some of the stuff you were saying about you don't know how the vote will go and and I can understand that but it's it has the potential I think to turn us on the, our, against our community against the, the not our community as in the queer community but as in the broader community by and this goes back to I guess you know why are people voting for someone like Pauline Hanson uh, you know the sort of questions of like the assumption that uh, that the population will will vote against us, will turn against us, despite the consistent popularity of this issue. Uh, and 
I think that there's real potential in a vote to actually work with community, work on the ground with communities, with straight communities, to actually build resilience for anti-homophobic campaigning, to to create community leaders who are not queer, who can stand up and fight against the bigotry that we're facing. Sure. And yeah. I think the queer community is not doing that work at the moment. Um, because we have this distrust in the general population, um, which I think is is exists a lot in broader sort of left-wing progressive circles, a, a, a broad distrust distrust in the general population. Sure. I mean, you, um, you're talking about elitism. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, I, um, I, I suppose I theoretically agree, except for the fact that I don't, as, as we've just been talking about, I don't have faith in uh, our community's ability to, to build that support in a way that's not... Um, Stigmatizing of people within our own absolutely, community. absolutely, yeah, and that and that 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 is something that worries me. But I guess um, you know, I think that what's interesting for me is that the population and people talk about you know how polling for marriage equality has been very strong for very, very number and number of years, um, and but and it's been stronger in the population than it has been in our, in politicians in our in our so so called leaders. It, it outstrips it every time. Uh, yet we still have more, for some reason, have more faith in our leaders to do this for us, our leaders in inverted commas, than we do in the population. And because we, for some reason, have more trust in that group than we do in the general population. Mm. I don't have trust in our queer, in our queer leaders. To, you know, I, I, I share the same concerns that it will, will sell out particular groups in order to achieve this one goal. Um, but I have more faith in the general population than I do in our so-called leaders um, to achieve this at this point of time, and I think that we don't have that faith in that in in the general population, and that's that's not a good thing because 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 mm. homophobia goes beyond the legal apparatus needed um, to to change you know the the laws that we need changed. Homophobia is a thing that occurs on the ground every day, and we are sh- we are showing no faith in our in a, in the broader community to help us defeat that. Yeah, um, and this is a real highlight of that for me. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I was just I keep thinking about um, <laughs> about scomophobia. Scomophobia. So, do, so when? Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. this is like a, a pretty kind of arcane piece of uh, the. Uh, election <laughs> cycle that happened about a, a week before. Oh, no, maybe more. Yeah, it was part of the marriage equality, the plebiscite discussion. It was actually a response to, to what I was saying before about yeah. Penny Wong. Yeah. Uh, where Scott Morrison, uh, who's a, um, well, we don't really have a government at the moment, but uh, <laughs> the who, who was a government minister under Turnbull, um, basically said who, his response to Penny Wong talking about hate speech and worrying about hate speech was to say, uh, I understand hate speech. I get it all the time because I'm religious. Because I'm religious. Yeah. Or, uh, but I think he said spe- like specifically uh, about his opposition to yeah because of the views that he has. Yes, the, yeah, you know which he bases is in, in his religion as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I think he kept it a bit vague. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I'm fascinated by this because when I think about, I mean, Scott Morrison is a ridiculous example because you know he's a he's a political elite and you know who cares. But uh, when I think about a kind of hypothetical argument that I might have with you know, Joe Bloggs on the street who is concerned, who maybe has some homophobia, uh, is concerned about um, marriage equality, uh, and, you know, I, I, I definitely think there is a concern that if we run this line primarily that um, we... Like, I have some sympathy for that. I have some sympathy yeah, yeah, for absolutely. a response that says, I feel 
like shut down or oppressed for my views against um, marriage equality. And there's yeah. a, there's a kind of circularity to that, of yeah. course. But uh, at the same time, yeah, as you were saying, I mean, it's not like homophobia is there. Like it's not just going to go away through yeah. legislating it. Um, and I think that if we run this line primarily that we're worried about hate speech, like that enables those kinds of responses. Scomophobia, um, which is the name for you know, people made these jokes about, you know, um, Scott Morrison's pain and called it scomophobia, uh, is, uh, I think, enabled by our focus on hate speech. Yeah, and I think that maybe to to wrap this up a little bit, um, I think that, you know, and going back to the Pauline Hanson example, one of the things I've been thinking about the other day, or the other, you know, these days, and the, the challenge we face is that, Calling someone an ignorant bigot is never going to change their views. You don't go up to someone and, you know, expect, you know, you're, a, you're an ignorant bigot and they're going to go, oh, yeah, I totally am an ignorant bigot. I'm going to change. <laughs> I'm, going to res- I'm going to research these communities and find out that I'm actually not, you know, that they're, that they're great. Um, and 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 maybe Scott Morrison is the best example, you know, is a, is a really recent example of the sort of reaction, the, the reactive pose that you know that he took in that situation to say well you know i face oppression as well you know and you know he, he got laughed at and you know i've got no problem with people laughing at scott morrison he's an asshole and i have no time for him <laughs> um but when we're talking about these groups on the on the when we're talking about the general population people who are voting for these politicians we don't like people who may participate in in, in so-called hate speech you know in, in a plebiscite campaign Talking, focusing on their hate speech and saying, look, you know, you bigots, you're hurting it, you know, is not necessarily going to be the way that we're going to stop it from occurring in the future. And that is the deep question of we've got to think about, like, how do we deal with that, acknowledging at the same time the pain that this hate speech, in inverted commas, is causing for, for our communities? How do we engage with that? I, I, I don't know. I think that's a longer discussion maybe to be had. Hmm. I also don't know. That's it for us today. Uh, before we go, a few words on scheduling for the podcast. Next week, I am heading to Durban in South Africa for the International AIDS Conference, so we'll miss our next scheduled podcast. Instead, what we're hoping, fingers crossed, to be able to do is record something while I'm in South Africa, internet speed permitting. I have no idea what that will look like until I get there, uh, which will be a kind of dispatch from the conference, uh, given its, its fairly direct relevance to the podcast. And then we'll go back to our regular schedule after that. Yeah, I hope that the internet does work because I think that would be quite interesting to hear to hear your perspective from there. Um, but in the meantime, as usual, you can catch us on queers.podomatic.com or subscribe to us on iTunes uh, at Queers if you just search for Queers. Uh, and, of course, please leave us a review and rating, which will help other people find us. You can also find us on Twitter. I am at Ben C. Riley. And I'm at Simon Copland. That's all for us today, and we will see you next time. Looking forward to it.